You guys could hear me. I could have belled it out. Maybe it might be rough on the video side for our recording, but do I need to start over now? <laughs> well, next week will be Palm Sunday. Um, I'm going to take the next two weeks, Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday, to look at two prophetic texts. One from Zechariah chapter 9, which looks forward to Palm Sunday. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at Psalm 16, a tremendous psalm for us to glean um, application for and then obviously look to the resurrection of Christ. So that's what's on the near horizon. But for today, if you take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 1, we'll be expounding in just monumental, glorious verse. The title of today's message is The Influence of the Gospel. So, what is it from a natural perspective, and that's the key to begin with here this morning, that produces an excitement and fervor in life? Whether it's from an anticipation standpoint, looking forward to something, or even from a past reflective standpoint, looking back. Now, I have many that I could share, but I'm sorry, you know me. Unfortunately, I have to give you a sports one. Many of my experiences, uh, near and dear to my heart, come from that, from a natural perspective. The one I'd like to share with you was a soccer experience. For the Imhoffs, you'll enjoy this one. Everyone else, too, as well, I'm sure. But it was an experience between my son and I, myself being the coach, and my son. I don't know if I see him out there. He would probably not like that I mentioned him, but him being one of the star defenders on the team. And we were in a very large tournament playing a very strong and respected foe one that had many, won many championships in the past. You could say on paper we were certainly the underdog. After a, a half of a difficult play, we played well, and we were actually down only two to one at halftime. But I remember the conversations at halftime. All of us knew that if we could come out and score the first goal of the second half, momentum would start to swing. Might be just the first touchdown of the second half for others in an example such as this. We knew we could win if we could do so. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. We scored the first goal. It was tied to two, two to two. We continued to play a rough and tough match they later went on to take a lead of 3-2, to two, and then with five minutes left in the game, we tied it. It was 3-3, three to three, but that was not enough for us. We knew that we could win. Excitement was brewing. And I can remember it like yesterday. With less than a minute left in that game, we scored a laser upper 90 shot and won 4-3 to three with seconds left. I was running down the sideline with players on and off the field. It was sheer excitement and emotion and elation 
from a natural perspective for sure. What is it for you? Is it a sports experience? Is it maybe a past work accomplishment? Some of you here recently have had the excitement of just initiating a new marriage covenant. That is obviously something to be very excited about and even to look back on and reflect. Others here, I know, are even looking forward from an anticipation standpoint to making that wonderful covenantal commitment in the future. No matter what example we look at, I'm sure all of us can have something that we see fuels our fire with excitement, whether it's from the past or even looking forward to the future. When it comes to the spiritual, hopefully we can all find something that is just as exhilarating as running down the sideline with with players on and off the field, if you will. As for today, my hope is that the gospel itself would be our motivation. What greater hope, what greater motivation, what greater excitement do we have in this life than the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? This morning, as we prepare for communion, I want us to reflect on the gospel from a past perspective, but also from a future perspective. As for the Apostle Paul, there was certainly no shortage of excitement for him concerning the gospel and his desire to share it with the church at Rome. Our context for today. In chapter 1, Verse 11, he states, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Paul deeply desired to share fundamental, as we see throughout the first 11 chapters of Rome, strong doctrine within these Believers, we might say he yearned for them to be grounded in this. What's more, he fervently was excited to share this news of the gospel with them too as well. Many of them already aware of, but having wonderful application, not just from a past reflective perspective, but today and forevermore going forward in the strength of the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 15, concerning that excitement that he had to share with them. He says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For Paul, it was all about the gospel. What about us? If we were to give a theme for our one verse that we will expound today, chapter 1, verse 16, we might say simply, the gospel is enough. It 
that's enough. As we come to the Lord's table today, will we approach this moment understanding the blessed privilege for those that are in Christ that you've been given in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? An excitement that lives as though the gospel is enough. This this morning, I want us to answer the question, what does the gospel produce in us? We'll answer that question with three responses. Three responses that we can derive from Paul's towering and bold proclamation of allegiance to the gospel. All revolving around this one verse. We could say that verses perhaps 16 and 17 encapsulate the theme of the entire letter as a whole. We'll deal with just verse 16 here this morning. As for application, it's my hope that as believers, in light of this grand and glorious gospel, we would be encouraged in the gospel, that we would be humbled by the gospel, and that we would be motivated finally here this morning by the gospel. With that said, would you stand with me, please? As we read our one verse, great as it is, many of you perhaps could even read it without looking at your Bibles. Paul states, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You may be seated. Our first response This morning to that question, what does the gospel produce in us, is number one, conviction. Conviction. The first phrase of this verse again reads, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Think about that, even for a moment. Coming right off the heels of expressing his eagerness to share it with them. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of the gospel. Why does he say, say, well, I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's many reasons that we could suggest, perhaps none better than Paul's contemporary work and the culture of the day. In writing to the church at Corinth during this exact same time period, he said the following, In chapter 1, verse 18 of Corinthians, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Certainly this dynamic has and will always continue to be on display apart from the grace of God. The world 
And we will see much more of this as we unpack this one verse. Hates the gospel. Considers it as foolishness. Not to mention, what do we see within the culture of his day? And now more and more, even within the culture of our day, is this a Christianity that is respected? Is this a Christianity that is free to practice its beliefs? You know the answer to that, especially in Paul's culture. It was the exact opposite, as was the case for Paul and, and many who were deemed followers of the way, as Acts articulates, suffered much persecution ridicule, verbal, physical insults, imprisonment, just the tip of the iceberg. We see much of this throughout the historical account of the book of Acts. Paul desired and he longed to impart conviction and confidence to all believers because he knew what they were up against. Even in his letter to his young disciple Timothy, he said the following, and you don't need to turn there, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Beloved, are you convinced here this morning that he will guard you, that he will protect you, that we are not ashamed, even collectively together, of the gospel? Paul, in essence, was preparing people, believers, for reproach, for suffering, for rejection, for what the world would call an accusation of foolishness. Why was that the case? Why would anyone even be opposed to the gospel in its simplistic definition it means good news. Notwithstanding, we need to see its complete meaning in order to understand the world's hatred, the world's disdain for the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, even in the beginning of this letter, the first four verses, Paul begins to lay out the simplistic definition of what the gospel is. We, we could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well. But look here at verse 1 through verse 4. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, for the gospel of God. And then now he goes and defines what that is, which he promised beforehand 
through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we see here? Confirmation, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning Christ. His divinity, his humanity concerning Christ. His death, his resurrection from the grave. All of these combining collectively to provide a very simple, basic definition of what the gospel is. If we were to include 1 Corinthians 15, we understand it's good news because of our sin. However, there's an even bigger picture which is presented by Paul. For example, in Romans chapter 2, look over there, verse 16. He states, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And then to close out this incredible epistle, chapter 16, verses 25 and 26 looking at a more complete picture of what the gospel entails. 16, 25, and 26 read, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. So, there are many more we could look at. But what is this more complete picture of the gospel? Why is it considered as foolishness. Why is it opposed by the world apart from grace? It's because the gospel is much more than just good news. Every single example that we've just explored, and we could look at others for the sake of time, we won't hear this morning. Every one of those examples involves one common denominator. And that is Christ. Christ certainly encompasses good news in his grace, in his mercy, and his forgiveness of sin. However, he just as much encompasses equally holiness judgment, truth, and obedience. Many of the characteristics that the world is not too keen 
too. Beloved, you see, when we understand the totality of the gospel, we become more aware and not surprised with the ridicule, with the rejection, with the accusations of foolishness, with perhaps the persecution. Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our allegiance. In all of His nature. This is who we represent. This is the gospel that we are not ashamed of. This is the gospel that we live with conviction. Now, for most of us, perhaps this is a simple affirmation. A simple understanding of this is what we are convicted about. One in which all believers should affirm. Nevertheless, let us not be naive in thinking that we are impervious to pliable convictions. For instance, are we convicted enough in the totality of all that the gospel entails in Christ and His nature to stand against the perversions of culture? To resist the perversions of culture? To expose the perversions of culture? All out of a motivation for love? Even when persecuted for it? Whether it's critical social justice or the LGBTQ plus whatever, whatever, whatever they want to add on to it. These are rightfully often mentioned in our culture to consent to the false gospels of our day is in essence a fruit of being ashamed of the true gospel. Hopefully for most of us here this morning, this is not the case. However, be on guard. A fault line is forming. Some of you understand that reference. However, what about evangelism? What about church life? Do we at times demonstrate a sort of shame in the gospel because of a fear of man? Are we more concerned with the state of governmental affairs than the souls of men? And oh, by the way, you've heard me many times state we should be concerned with the state of governmental affairs. And we should be concerned with promoting righteousness which exalts a nation. But ultimately, nothing changes unless the heart of man is changed by the gospel. It is enough. 
Do we compromise the idea of God-centered, word-centered church life in order to attract the world? The world who considers already what you believe as foolishness, let it never be for us. Jesus Christ and all that he encompasses is enough. That's the gospel that we live with conviction. That's one reason why we come to the table today with confidence in conviction. Now, conviction is clearly a reason for excitement here this morning. That said, we cannot and must not forget the reason why we even cannot be ashamed, why we do have conviction, why we do have confidence. It is all about the power of God for salvation. So, in light of that, what would be another appropriate response to our question this morning? What does the gospel produce in us? And that's number two. Humility. Humility. Look again at the second part of verse 16. We read, For it is the power of God for salvation. What is it about the power of God that produces humility? To answer that, I want us to briefly and quickly unpack Paul's context in this letter concerning the natural man apart from grace. Look over at chapter 3, verse 9. Paul states, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And Paul here is clearly communicating that no Jew has any right to feel superior to the Greek, to the Gentile. Why? Because they're all under sin. Moreover, not only are they under sin, but there's an even bigger picture of utter hopelessness on display that he continues to communicate. Look just a couple verses down. I'll read verse 10 and verse 12 of chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Or in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. 
Do you see it? Paul is emphatic here, repeating the negative statements in order for them to truly understand and appreciate the significance of utter hopelessness for mankind. The whole world has been polluted with sin. Now, maybe some might say that this is just a picture of the unbeliever's struggle with sin. This is not total and complete hopelessness. In response to that, turn over to chapter 8 of Romans for even more clarification. All of this building support for why this leads to a response of humility. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 reads, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Friends, it doesn't get more hopeless than that. This is, in essence, total and complete inability. Some would refer to it as radical depravity. Commentator John Murray said the following concerning the state of the human mind apart from the grace of God surrounding this verse, Romans 8, 7. He said, the last clause, neither indeed can it be, points to the impossibility that resides in the mind of the flesh and means nothing less than it is a moral and psychological impossibility for those who are in the flesh to have any disposition of obedience with respect to the law of God. There you have it. To use an old saying, the natural man is up a creek without a paddle. Why does the gospel produce humility? It's because without it, there is absolutely no rescue, no salvation from our sinful rebellion. As the psalmist states in Psalm 51, we were born in iniquity. Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 8, evil is continually within the heart of man. We desperately needed, even though we wanted nothing to do with it, the power of God for salvation. You know, the world often marvels at the supernatural looking in all sorts of places for it. 
in all reality, the power of God for salvation for dead sinners is the greatest miracle the world will ever see. That said, what's so unique about this power, continuing to build a reason for our humility in light of the gospel? Why does it produce a humility like no other? Let's examine it even a little closer. Look again, turn back to chapter 1. Right from the get-go, we see two massive points from chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 1 reads, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart... For the gospel of God. Two key points in the original grammar here. First off, this adjective called. Paul uses it seven times throughout his other writings. Each and every time he uses it, it is effectual in its power, it is certain. In its calling. All the more reason for us to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, considering our disposition apart from grace. Secondly, even the verb, as states Paul, was set apart for the gospel of God. It's written in a way where he received the action of that verb. Another reminder for us all who've been called and set apart for the gospel of God to say, as Paul says to the church at Corinth, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Likewise, this sovereign effectual power of God for salvation continues to be on display throughout. And I'll share just three examples for you where we'd be here forever. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Listen to the power of God which is effectual, which is certain, and which is edifying, which is encouraging for us, and in all means should build our humility. Romans 8.30 states, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Or over in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, he goes on to say, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. 
or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37, we read, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not cast them out. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him. Praise the Lord, this is the case. We needed the power of God for salvation. To turn our hearts of stone to a heart of flesh. To open our blind eyes in order that we could see. It was as Peter said in chapter 1 verse 23 of his first letter. The imperishable seed of the word of God which caused you to be born again. That's the power of God for salvation. As we come to the Lord's table today to remember his sacrifice on your behalf. Remember the state of your soul before the gospel. In light of that. How will humility be a daily practice of your life? We surely come to the table today with conviction and confidence as we stated in our first response. Yet, will our conviction, will our confidence be seasoned with grace? And gentleness and peaceableness, all in harmony together, in light of this great power of God that redeemed and rescued your soul from a pit of destruction. This is what the gospel should produce in us. Be that as it may. Talk is cheap, amen? As James states, faith without works is dead. And our third response, we'll see what conviction and humility combine to produce in light of this glorious truth of the gospel. And that's number three, action. So, was this gospel only for you? Those of you that are in Christ, of course not. Look with me at the final portion of Romans 1.16. It was for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek we began with excitement and fervor. As for Paul, he could not help but share his eagerness, his excitement, his passion for the gospel at the church at Rome. 
What about us? From a natural perspective, we love sharing excitement with others. It's just not the same being excited by yourself. Is it not? How much more so when it comes to matters of eternal significance? As for the gospel, it's not just yours. It's for everyone who believes. Whether it's that word, everyone, or the word Jew and Greek, encompassing Gentile. This is the free gift of the gospel. One which is offered without discrimination, without prejudice, indiscriminately to all. What would keep us from sharing this kind of excitement with others? Praise the Lord that someone did so for us. That said, does this in any way contradict this power of God for salvation that is absolutely essential for the salvation of a sinner? Not at all. And I want us to look at Romans chapter 10 for an explanation of why not. Turn over to Romans chapter 10 as we draw to a close. And I'll read verses 12 through 15. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And was Paul, in all reality, speaking to leaders within the church? Of course he is, but this applies to you too as well, beloved. We have no need to look further than the, the Great Commission itself. There is no doubt That God in His sovereign, effectual power for salvation is the first cause and author of salvation. Although, in His divine plan, He has called men to be a means in the process. We might say, That we've been called to be the conduit of proclaiming this power of God for salvation. Paul, in writing verse 15 here, 
is actually quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7. Within that context, the prophet Isaiah was delivering a message to the nation of Judah on the back end of their exile from Babylon, saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who share good news of good things. Think of that context. Seventy years of captivity, and yet here is this deliverance being proclaimed. My brothers, my sisters in Christ, there are some in our day and age, in our circles of influence, that are still in their Babylon of sin. Yet God is calling you to proclaim the good news of the gospel, a message that can put an end to their slavery. A message which will effectually, with certainty, call his people to their deliverance. And what a blessed privilege you've been given to play a role in it. Do you remember the excitement and the fervor when you first received this message of deliverance? Praise the Lord for those whose feet were beautiful in sharing good news of good things to you. Releasing you by the power of God first from your bondage to sin. Let that be a reminder and a motivation for us all to follow suit. And as we remember our Lord's sacrifice this morning, would we reflect on areas in which we need to examine ourselves, even as 1 Corinthians 11 and that communion passage speaks to, not in a spirit of condemnation, but in a desire for renewed conviction? Would we reflect on the power of the gospel, not just from a past perspective and our rescue from sin, but even today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives and the power that we live in this gospel? And then finally, biblical conviction, humility, and action can only be produced in those in whom have truly received the gospel. As we discussed, Christ in all of his nature encompasses the gospel, his mercy his grace and his forgiveness is beyond compare 
to those of us who've received it. However, at the same time, his truth, his holiness, and his judgment are not to be trifled with. Contrary to popular sentiment, Jesus Christ is not a weak and feeble Savior. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. The Bible even states he judges and makes war. If there is anyone here who has never truly received the gospel and repentance from sin and faith towards God, this ordinance is not for you. However, if you would only humble yourself before the great God of heaven and earth, it's just as much for you as it is for anyone here today. If that's anyone here today, friend, I tell you, the Bible proclaims whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come today before you with conviction and confidence, humbled by the cross, yet motivated by the cross, for we are not ashamed of the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for your resurrection from the grave, which has made everything true. And certain for us here today. And oh Lord, as we come as believers, my heart cannot help but plea for perhaps one or some here today who need to understand this power of God for salvation. Lord, would you draw them by your grace, humble them at the foot of the cross, and have them come to the table for the first time this morning in fellowship, in communion, with their personal, intimate Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.